Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening wherever you happen to be. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and subscribe on YouTube. There's another People YouTube channel. Search for the show by name, Other PPL, over at YouTube. Today on the program, my guest is Matthew Zapruder, author of a new memoir entitled Story of a Poem. And isn't that true for for making art too? I mean, if you if you go into it with a, you know, with this, uh, you know, a rigid idea of what you want to do, and you just don't, you, you you're unwilling to be changed, and you're just like, I, this is this piece of writing exists for me to like say what I think and what I mean. And sometimes there's a time for that, for sure. But but you know, you're not really going to be in the dynamic, responsive situation that you need to be in to really make something that's going to be reflective of you know, of, of life and its actual complexity. I think a lot of the time that's, I, I really believe that. And I, I, I believe it because I've seen it in my own work, but also in a lot of other people's work. So, so that, that parenting and fathering and, and being a, being a writer are, are, are close to me in the mentality. You know, I think I say in the books, you know, I figured out a lot of things in writing that I hadn't figured out in life. So I had to catch up. All right, everybody. That was Matthew's a pruder. His new memoir is called Story of a Poem, available now from Unnamed Press. What can I say about this book? It is a moving, deeply felt, deeply intelligent meditation on creation, the creation of a single poem, the creation of family. It's about fatherhood. It is about parenting a neurodivergent child. And ultimately, it's a book about change and revision. It's a very unique book. There's not another quite like it. I guess you could say that about all books, but this one, maybe more so. 
Story of a Poem is about the painstaking, often intuitive revision of a poem or really any, any work of art. And it's about the revision of oneself and one's beliefs and attitudes as one is forced to respond to difficult life circumstances. In Story of a Poem, Matthew Zapruder writes really elegantly about the pain and the joy that he and his wife have experienced raising a son who is autistic. It is a process, as Zapruder describes it, that involves a lot of humility, a lot of learning, a lot of acceptance. And in Story of a Poem, he is exploring this aspect of his life by looking inward and sometimes backward at his own upbringing, at his formative years as a young scholar and artist. And he's also looking very carefully and in a way that really is fascinating at the work that he does on the page as a poet. I'm very happy to be welcoming Matthew Zapruder back to the Other People Show. That conversation is coming up in just a bit. Today's episode is brought to you by Melville House, publisher of the debut novel Flux by Jinu Chong. I just talked to Jinu Chong on this podcast not too long ago. Flux is a mind-bending, stylish, neo-noir. It's about a young man whose reality unravels when he begins to suspect that the tech startup he works for has inadvertently discovered time travel and is using it to cover up a string of violent crimes. That's Flux, the debut novel by Jinu Chong, available now from Melville House. The Other People podcast is offered freely. The entire archive of this show is made available to listeners with no paywall. There's nothing in the way. Have at it. Go get it all. Go listen. But what I'm counting on is I'm counting on regular listeners, people who love this show, people who feel like they get something from it, people who love literary culture and wish to see it continue into the future. I'm counting on such people to support this show for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash other PPL pod. It's a no brainer. Hopefully $1 a month. It's a sliding scale. So you get to choose $1, 3, 5, 10, 20. It's up to you. It doesn't matter. Whatever you can afford as you move up the scale, you can get merchandise, Support this podcast if you love this podcast over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you want to get another people t-shirt, they're very soft. They fit well. They're comfortable. They wash well. There's lots of different colors. There's men's and women's sizes. You can get another people t-shirt by going to the show's official website, otherppl.com. Just scroll down, look for the t-shirt. You can't miss it. If you would like to get my once a week free email newsletter, you can sign up for that at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. It goes out once a week. It's essentially an enumerated list. I share things that I've been reading and finding interesting and amusing. So get the newsletter if that sounds good. If you would kindly rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to this podcast, I would appreciate it. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever it is, give the show a rating. If it's possible to write a review, write a quick review. It helps new listeners find the show. The Other People Podcast is on social media. Follow the program on TikTok, Instagram, or Twitter. If you have feedback for me, you can email the show. The address is letters at otherppl.com. Finally, I have a novel out. 
It's almost a year old. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It's available right now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook if that suits you. So if you want to read my book, it's out there. Go get it. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So my guest, once again, is Matthew Zapruder. His new memoir is called Story of a Poem, available now from Unnamed Press. Matthew Zapruder is the author of five collections of poetry, including Come On All You Ghosts, which was a New York Times Notable Book of the Year, and Father's Day, which came out on Copper Canyon Press in 2019. He is also the author of a work of prose called Why Poetry. Matthew Zapruder has received a Guggenheim, a William Carlos Williams Award, a Mary Sarton Award from the Academy of American Arts and Sciences, a Lannan Fellowship down in Marfa, Texas. His poetry has been adapted and performed at Carnegie Hall. Back in the year 2000, he co-founded Verse Press, and he is now editor-at-large at Wave Books, where he edits contemporary poetry, prose, and translations. He teaches in the MFA in Creative Writing Program at St. Mary's College of California. Very pleased to have Matthew Zapruder back here on the show to get to catch up with him and to talk with him about his wonderful new book entitled Story of a Poem. So without any further ado, let's get to today's conversation. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Matthew Zapruder. Don't you feel, I mean, you must have this experience too as a writer that that there's something about a finished product that presents itself with a kind of inevitability, you know, and then it's easy for people, you know, you know, who, who don't j- normally practice that particular type of writing and that particular type of art to sort of imagine that it was all planned <laughs> because it, because the end result is generally more polished. So it's kind of like this, and I think that's particularly true for poetry. It has this sort of feeling of inevitability about it a lot of the time like kind of like and and it's like no you don't you know the amount of mistakes that were made or wrong turns or cul-de-sacs and just general effing around (laughs) that happens is is you know you know i think is interesting and i wanted to write about that you know i wanted to write my way into that and sort of reveal that process i i would like to read a book like this you know that's about the process of making something by almost any artist who i'm interested in you know, that's kind of a little bit what this podcast is, I think, for you. So I, we get inside your process of making, which is yeah. just those are some of my favorite episodes. I love that when you talk about that or when you touch on that with people. Well, I think people who are creators love to read books that get into the process of creation and sort of become about their own making. And I was reading, uh, you know, as I was prepping for the conversation about the point at which you arrived at an understanding of what story of a poem is ultimately about. Mm -hmm. That's always, I think that's often a process for people who are working on any book length project. You're sort of working your way to an understanding of what it is you're up to. And you said that this book, and it made a lot of sense to me when I read it, is about changing and revising my life and a poem. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's the elegant one-liner. It catches it all, but it takes so long to get to that elegant one-liner. <laughs> yeah, took it. Yeah, I didn't understand. Well, I had an instinct, you know, about this book, and it was very different. So, so you know, you mentioned why poetry. That was a book that began with kind of like a particular sort of motivation. It was like 
can I explain poetry to people who are interested but feel shut out of it somehow, basically? I was like, and what would happen if I took on that task? Seriously, so it almost began from the outside in. It was kind of like, I have a thing I want to do. Let's see if I can do it. And then this book is the opposite. It comes from the inside out in a way. It came from an, a, you know, an inchoate kind of like, uh, you know, almost like a vegetal being drawn towards some kind of an idea that like, there's something here that I need to figure out. So I'm just going to start writing every day and put it down and put it down and sort it out later. And then, so it did take me a long time to know what I was trying to do with this book. And along the way at times, I wasn't even sure that it was a book, you know, maybe it was just writing to get to something else. I didn't know. I think I read you were writing every day mm -hmm. and you were kind of exchanging pages with a friend, right? Yeah. So Catherine Barnett, who's a poet who lives in New York and I agreed to send each other 500 words a day minimum, just each day, every day, five, a minute, you know, and the only way we were supposed to respond to each other was to say, thank you. Because just not to do, no, it's not workshopping. It wasn't evaluative or whatever. And the only task was to sit down each day. And so, you know, do it. And it became this incredibly pleasurable act. I just loved it. It was like, I joked, I was joking with um, someone the other day that was like, when you start exercising, you know, or meditating, you, you're familiar with that, you know, and you do it and then you're just like, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. Like, I'm never <laughs> going to stop. And then like, of course you do. Yeah. Like, I do. Maybe you don't, but I do. And I'm like, ugh, like, you know, and then, but it's, it's like when you're in that thing, you're like, why don't I always live this way? You know? why don't I always cook at home? You know, like, right. You know, <laughs> right? right. No more takeout, but like, but yeah, but the, 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 you know, so it was the, that process lasted, you know, four or five months of daily writing like that. And I loved doing it and I would write about whatever was on my mind and, you know, just, and I'd end up being something like 125,000 words, I think at the end, you know, just this huge pile of stuff. And then I had to go in and be like, what is this? I did have the idea of starting with a poem you know, just the very rough draft of a poem and writing through it to see what would happen. That was kind of like something I kept touching on during those months. So I had a little bit of a kind of thing I was trying to do. But other than that, I had no idea. And I also knew that I needed to write about some things that were difficult in my personal life and just the difficult time we were in. And I, so I just threw myself in, I guess. I was going to ask you, because this book is obviously about poetry and there is as we were just, you know, as we've been discussing the craft element, but it's also a very personal book about parenthood and in particular what it means to be the parent of a neurodivergent child mm -hmm. and all of the fear and anxiety and heartbreak and sort of like crushing love uh, that happens to a person, as I well know, when your child is atypical. So you, you had that on your mind clearly and you knew you were going to write about it. Yeah, I think I had the instinct, the feeling that the only I, I knew that there was something in me that needed to change. And, you know, I'm a big fan of therapy. I'm a big fan of, you know, talking with friends and meditate, you know, meditate, all those things. But I think I also knew that I had to write my way through it. And I just had an instinct, and I didn't know if I was right, that there was something about writing the arc of a single poem and understanding my own life better that were connected. I didn't know how or why or how that was going to work out, but I just kind of thought that that feels right to me. And I just knew the only way to figure it out was to do it. And if I was wrong, well, then I would have just written for months and something else would happen. But I, but I, but that, the, the very vague idea that there was a connection there and something to learn and something to change in myself and also in a poem and that those things were related, 
that vague idea was inside me and the only way to pursue it was just to write my way into it. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You know? Okay, so another question about this process, because I really love this idea, especially in the early going where you really don't know exactly what you're even up to, but you're enforcing a discipline upon yourself in this cooperative way with a writer friend, and you've just made mm -hmm. this commitment to send 500 words a day to each other. I get how that discipline can be super helpful and just being generative, just getting words on the page obviously makes a difference and you can sort it out later and you mm -hmm. know find, find the gold in the big pile of rubble or whatever. But one question that comes to mind for me is what it was like to receive 500 words from somebody every day and to read their work in progress, which is a pretty intimate thing, right? Somebody's sorting through stuff and writing about personal stuff and just trying to kind of push internal buttons and see what's there, you know, what was the reading process like and the receiving process like, and how did it maybe impact your work and your God, understanding of it? That's such a great question. And, and I have not been asked, I, you know, whatever it's, it, it was, it was very, what was it like? Well, well, I'll step back and say the interesting thing about Catherine to me is she's one of those people who, I mean, I love her poems. Catherine and and say her name again, just for listeners. Catherine Barnett is her name, and she's published several books of poems. She's an amazing, amazing poet. And I, she's one of those people, and we all have them in our lives, that you kind of meet, and you feel like you already had met them a bunch of times before. <laughs> like, we just hit it off. Like, we had, like, you know, we were just friendly, uh, you know, in a, but in a different kind of way, where we, like, already were, like, on the same whatever frequency or something. But I don't really know her or much about her life. So she was the perfect person to do this with because I felt a kind of ease with her, but I also had to explain everything and vice versa. She had to explain and she was going through some stuff in her own life. And, and so she had to explain everything to me. 
And I loved getting her notes. And it was kind of great because I would get up early in the morning because that's just like the best time for me before everything breaks into complete chaos, as you know. <laughs> and so, but, uh, so I would do it real early, like maybe like five in the morning or something like that usually. And, and then I, and then I'd be like, you know, on my way and she would often, I would often get something at like 1152 PM, you know, like, or whatever, like right at the end here, you know? And, um, and, and it was great because it was so intimate the way she wrote about exactly where she was and like what she was struggling with. And she wrote a lot about, she lives in New York and she wrote a lot about like the weather or like the way things sounded or what it was like to walk on the street and what she was reading, what she was thinking about. It was so great to get her daily things. I looked forward to them. They felt that I just, I just loved reading. And it was like reading a long thing. A friend wrote just for days and days and months, you know, it was, it was awesome. Mm. I loved it. It was very heartening. And I felt less by myself, you know, like, I mean, I just felt connected to somebody in that kind of way, you know. And just that basic accountability too. And just that, that shot of maybe energy and inspiration that you get when somebody's sending you especially when the work has like real life in it, even if it's not fully rendered, you know what I'm saying? Like, Oh yeah. You get that juice. From well, and her. also I should just want to add, I'm sorry to interrupt, but, 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 um, you know, she would write about something and then I, so, so I'd often get her, e her email at like 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock night, you know, I read it and, and then, or I'd read it first thing in the morning when I got up and then I would respond to her. You know, and so if she, if she had mentioned she was reading something, she might, and then I might, if I had read it or I had different, you know, I would, I would write her back or she, she might write about some issue about writing and then I would write her back about it or she, and then she would write me. So we were like actually in correspondence and talking with each other. Like that was another part of it. You know, it was, it was, it was not, you know, we weren't workshopping each other, like I said, or like evaluating or praising, but like we were, we were talking with each other, you know, we were in this long conversation. And I, yeah. the pages that you're sending from the jump were dealing with the per, like the poetry stuff, obviously, but the personal stuff too. Oh right? yeah, oh yeah. I mean, I just went right there. I mean, I think, like I said, because I trusted her. You know, I think a different person might have been a little more self protective or try to present myself in a kind of way, but for whatever reason, I didn't feel like I had to do that with her, and so I was fortunate in that way, and you know, maybe even reckless <laughs> you know i think there's something a bit reckless about just you know you 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 know this because you've written this way you know once you're writing about your kid or your family your parents you, there's a lot of things issues come up that uh, you ethical issues basically and so it was important i think for me to not worry about those things at, at that stage of the writing right you know there that were i knew i was like that will come later i will deal with that later you know there's a line that you quote in the book, famous line from Susan Sontag, uh, everyone who is born holds dual citizenship in the kingdom of the well and the kingdom of the sick, I believe is, is the line. Mm -hmm. And this book is about, for lack of a better way of putting it, it's about that change from living in the kingdom of the well and then moving yeah. into maybe the kingdom of the unwell. And I relate very much to... Uh, that experience, uh, we're sort of in the same boat for listeners who don't know, uh, both, both of us have atypical kids, different diagnoses, but have both been through that challenge as parents. And something that I think about creatively from a personal perspective is how inevitable seeming it became to me that I would have to write about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, not as a creative issue, but just as a like survival issue. Mm -hmm. 
you have to, I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, we're writerly to begin with, but I was having a conversation with a friend of mine recently. Uh, this friend also has a disabled child and we were talking and the friend was like, I don't know if I'm going to write about it. And immediately I was sort of like, I think you will. Yeah. <laughs> My friend is a writer and I'm like, I don't, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm posing this cause I want to know if it feels familiar to you or if you disagree, but it's almost absurd after something like this happens, after you get a very difficult diagnosis and your life changes irrevocably in a very powerful way. Isn't it kind of absurd to think as a creative person, as an artist, that you would then sit down and write about something that did not address this? Yeah. I, from, for me, it would be absurd. Yeah. I didn't, I wasn't, yeah, that was not an option. And, and I think my previous book of poems, you know, Father's Day, that, that book of poems sort of, it was very much like in the kind of, uh, you know, middle of the first stages of kind of like being informed that my son was, you know, autistic and like, what does that mean? I don't even know what that means. Like what, this was very inside, like a kind of like really a period of a lot of turmoil. And that, that um, information came to me, you know, a month after Trump was elected. And there was also, that was also really, you know, there was a lot of other stuff go that was going on in the Bay Area that was really kind of scary and, you know, and, and, and felt out of control. The whole situation felt out of control there. That got, you know, there was, there was a lot of, you know, there was the ghost ship fire that happened and other things that were going. So just everything felt really unstable. And so that, that book of poems is really inside that experience, you know, I think. And it was, it, and in a lot of ways, I think it reflects some of the rawest and most difficult moments of first coming to terms with the fact that my story and the story of my family was going to be different from some sort of idealized version, which probably no one gets to live anyway, you know, but, 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 you know, whatever naive ideas I had about something, but then, but then, um, this book is more, I think it's a, it's, it's a few years after I got, we got that information about our son and I was getting to know him so much better, you know, as we all do with our kids as time goes on. And so I think it's more, it's more like about, I think I, I, I like I said, I think I knew that I, I knew that I needed to change some stuff in myself because I was missing out on, on, on being a really happy parent and enjoying my kid as much as I think I could. And I think it's true that I, that I, I, that the book did teach me something about that. It didn't teach me, you know, oh, everything's fine and there's no problems or something, but it's like that, just that, you know, letting go of some, some things inside myself, you know, that were just holding me back. I don't know if you had that experience at all too, or have had that experience with your kids. Or yeah. Like I mean, I think the issue, the word that comes to mind when it comes to dealing with something like this is acceptance. That's the first thing. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, whenever I find myself in a not so great state, like fear, worry, sadness, self-pity, I'm usually in a state of unacceptance or non-acceptance of what is. And when I am accepting of everything just as it is, which does sometimes happen, that is when things are easiest yeah. and I am able to function best as a parent. And I can't, I don't think anyone's going to bat a thousand with this stuff. I think, you know, it, all things being equal, I, just I think to be above the Mendoza line, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but I mean, you talk about, is that what it is? say again, is that 250 or 200 with the batting? I can remember something like yeah, that. Yeah. I don't, yeah. Something like that. But time I, I, could, I could get there. You know, it's pretty good. 
I'd take 250, yeah. you know? But I mean, and, I think, yeah, what you're saying is really so true. And I mean, I really, you know, I think, I think even sharing this with other people is worthwhile, you know, just the fact that it's, but I mean, I also think, you know, I mean, and, and I'm sure you would agree. I mean, it's no breaking news that we live in an incredibly ableist society. And I internalized that stuff. You know, I grew up in, you know, in a certain kind of way around people who were, you know, presented themselves at least as neurotypical and healthy or whatever. And, you know, it was, it was, you know, the kingdom of the well, the kingdom of the privileged, the kingdom of the housed, the kingdom of the straight, the kingdom of the cisgendered, you know, all this stuff. Like that's the kingdom I grew up in. And I didn't know that that was the kingdom I grew up in. And, you know, and, and then over time you realize that and you realize you have a lot of sh- stuff in you that you need to work through so that you don't perpetrate things on other people. And that's a, that's a big process that I think a lot of us have been going through, especially intensely over the past couple of years. And nobody deserves a medal for that. It's just part of not being a total massive asshole. And, you know, but then when you, this particular situation and, and you can relate, I'm sure you get this particular version of intense encounter with your own ableism you know which i didn't ask for that i didn't i don't i don't think that's right i don't believe in that yet it's in me so what was i going to do how was i going to work through that you know and i think that writing through it was and writing particularly writing a poem you know and trying to work revise 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 was was helping me you know work through that stuff inside myself and that's what was keeping me from really seeing and appreciating my son it was my own bullshit it was inside myself, you know, there's nothing wrong with my kid. <laughs> right. There's something wrong with the world, you know? And, yeah. and, 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 you know, that's, I really believe that. I think it's like, I think I was, I was completely wrong about these issues. Yeah. It's funny. I, I, in my book, there's a section where I write about, and it's writing from a personal place where like after the diagnosis ha- happens, I'm like out in public and suddenly like everywhere I look, I'm seeing people with disabilities. Right. I remember that. That was an intense part of your book. And I've had a very similar experience. Yeah. Where you it's going, kind of oh. gift. It's a kind of gift because you're like, you really start to see people. You're like, holy shit. You know, like, like, like this world is full of, I mean, you know, I first had that experience when my dad died and I, and I was like, I was like, oh my God, everybody's dad is dead <laughs> or going to die. Like, like, like I just remember thinking that like, oh, that's why everybody's so freaked out all the time. You know, and like, I just realized it suddenly, you know, that like people, I mean, it's so naive. I, I was such a child in a way, emotionally, you know, before these things happened and, you know. Do you, do you ever think about like the ways that, I mean, experience is the best teacher, right? And then you go through the process of, you know, your child is diagnosed, it's terrifying and heartbreaking, but it also delivers greater compassion, hopefully. And then this just deeper awareness, as, you, as you're saying. Mm-hmm. You ever think to yourself, like, man, this is what it takes for me to just be aware (laughs) of the struggles, all the blind spots that we have, like as human beings, just generally, and I, you know, myself included, yourself included, like, I guess I wish that my moral imagination were stronger and that I had more sensitivity. I still have blind spots. Well, I think it's, I think it's not going to come as any breaking news that, you know, white straight dudes you know, kind of sail through in a lot of ways. And so, you know, so I think when you smash into something like this, it can be a bigger shock because, you know, like, like, like most people in this world don't, don't go through life being protected in the way that I just speak for myself, the way that I was. And so, you know, smashing into difficulties, you know, was quite, 
was quite an education in, in my in the poverty of my moral imagination i would say to you know to go off of what you're saying but you know i think there's a lot of other people who do who will be like yeah dude welcome to welcome to the club you know welcome to things not other fucking working out exactly the way you want them to all the time you know right. like not that they you know what i mean and so 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 i think you know i thought a lot about i thought a lot about that and just like man you know i i i i didn't understand anything about what people were going through i guess you know and it's like it, i hope it's made me made me more like at least gentle with people you know like i think yeah. just like just like you know because i would like some gentleness applied to me when i'm out in the world you know because i'm maybe had a rough day or something you know and i mean i just i just think like i said i mean i have all these things swirling around and then there's like this poem you know and i'm trying to be like what's the relationship here you know what why does this feel so connected to me writing poems and trying to be a be a you know a less sucky human being I don't know. Well, there's a there's a passage in the book in your book that I want to read that speaks to this uh, the stuff that we've been talking about where you say and and I should say too I believe this must be from the beginning of the book because it's written in the third person. Right, it, yeah. The book begins in third and then shifts to first. Yeah, we could talk about that if you want later. But. Yeah, but I loved I loved that choice. You know, I love this opening section that sort of looks at things maybe from you know 35,000 feet or whatever and kind of just lays out the stakes, but you write, they had been stars in school, high achievers who went to colleges with impressive names and had succeeded professionally at the highest levels. Now they were on the other side of that wall, the grievous limitations of the pervasive, ruthless, meritocratic machine into which they had so willingly and unquestioningly inserted themselves in order to emerge on the other end as highly valued products became painfully obvious. The experience of being people who needed help and often merited compassion felt intolerable and utterly necessary. That resonated with me, mm -hmm. that paragraph, because it's it has been uncomfortable for me in the wake of my son's diagnosis to suddenly find myself in that role. I am so much more comfortable thinking of myself as the person who gives the help rather than the person who needs it. <laughs> You're the host. Yeah. I mean, right? Yeah. I'm happy to be, I love to do that. You're the man. host. You're the narrator. You're the dad. You're the, you're the, you're the, you're the, you know, you're the care caretaker. You're the, you're the helper. People come to you with problems, you know? Yeah. Sure. And then, and you likewise, you're the teacher, the dad, right. you know, like we're, that's just like, right. and then suddenly things get flipped. And, you know, the other thing, there, there's another line that you wrote that I underlined where you say there is a singular terror when the story is suddenly taken away and one is left in a new life. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a, it's disruptive. And, and you know what? This will happen if you live long enough. This happens to everybody. Oh, yeah. It happens to everybody. And that's the thing. It happens to everybody. And I mean, that's, 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 you know, and, and I mean, it's then, you know, like you said, you look around and you're like, you just feel differently about it, people around you, you know, just, and, and I, I, yeah, I really felt that. I really felt that. And I think that it was quite a shock to, to realize that I was not, that the values I had, some of the values I had were superficial, let's say. And, and to be like, okay, wait, like, you know, when it comes to my own life, I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, have the same, you know, kind of 
compassion and, and understanding that I would have said I had <laughs> towards, you know, like I'm thinking about ableism again in particular, but, you know, I think there's a really, I didn't write a lot about this in the book. I have an essay that's in Harper's that I removed from the book. That's kind of more about this, but it's the link between this and white supremacy. I mean, which is really, I mean, I think it's almost too obvious to point out, but like that, you know, there's a kind of reckoning there too, that, that, that those of us who are white and privilege have to do with ourselves and continue to do with ourselves. And I, I really believe that like that we might think we're X and Y and Z way, but then when it comes down to it, like, you know, are we really doing, are we doing what we need to do? And it's a constant process. And, and one of the things I wanted to do in this book was to open up that process to say, we're like, I am in process, you know, and I think this need to pre present oneself as like a perfect, uh, you know, result of a bunch of, you know, but reading, you know, Rob, what's her name, Robin D'Angelo books or something is like, or, or, or that I'm not like, I'm not prejudiced or I'm not this, or I'm not that is like, that's a thing that leads to more violence, I think, actually. So, you know, I was trying to do that. And that's, you know, the revising the poem somehow seems part of that too, you know, like, like kind of being willing to work on things and willing to, being willing to show that I'm working on things, I guess was important to me, you know. And let's talk about while we're here, that decision to open the book in the third and then shift to the first, because, uh, I know from having researched a bit that you struggled a lot with how to open oh this book. <laughs> yeah, it was brutal. Yeah. Cause I mean, if you go back, you know, I'd written blah, 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 you know, written a ton of things, you know, like over a hundred thousand words. So I had a lot of stuff, but you know, how was I going to frame this? Like, and there was sort of this arc of starting the poem and finishing it. That was there vague kind of, you know, like arc, but like how, you can't just start. I knew I couldn't just start the book there because people would be like, why are you, what are you doing? Like writing a poem, like what are these, like in the book, there are these facsimiles, you know, the typewritten pages and people be like, what is this? What, why, what, what is this thing that's there? And so, and I knew that because I'd showed it to people without a preface and they were all confused, including my wife, who's a very good reader and knows me quite well. So, so, so I, I should, I should, I should interject and say that if your wife is confused by yeah. your memoir, it might be a bad sign. Yeah, if your wife doesn't understand your memoir, that's about your life and your family life, then probably need some, need some work. Yeah. So, so, but yes. And so I knew I needed a preface, but God, I, I, I tried so many different ways and I have all these drafts and they're all awful in different, and it's kind of amazing. It's almost like a taxonomy of awfulness of like ways that you can, like sometimes they're really like mansplainy and pretentious. And then sometimes they're like cloyingly self-deprecating in a way that's also egotistical. And sometimes they're just confusing, like, like they don't help at all. It's like 12 pages. And then it's like, they didn't explain actually what's going on. You know, so I could not figure it out. I tried and tried and tried. And then I remembered that I had been in a lecture by a friend of mine named Rachel Howard, who's a, who's a memoirist and novelist, Rachel Howard. And she was giving a talk here at St. Mary's where I teach. And she said something like, when every story begins with once upon a time, like every story that's told, whether it's said or not, like that's kind of like, here we are now and I'm telling you a story. And so I thought in total desperation, I was just like, I guess I'll just try to start with those words. And I typed like once upon a time, you know, and then the rest of the sentence came out and it was in the third person. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I just kept going. And then I was like, oh, this is, it was easy to write that. It was just the way it had to be written. I think I just need to step outside and like kind of comment, you know, or be outside the story enough to just tell it. 
and yeah. lead to the moment when the book begins, which is me sitting in my office writing this poem. Like get all the way up there, kind of, and then and then all the information was out of the way. Nobody needed any more information, and it was and we were ready to go, kind of. So let's talk about this typewriter. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's still part of it, it, the the Royal Quiet Deluxe. Yep. It was what handed down to you. It was a. It was yeah. It was it was my mom's. I, I actually I don't. Have, it's not in here. I have I have another Royal typewriter that's here. Um, but um, it was my mom's typewriter from high school. And so when my grandparents moved down to be like near to my family in DC and they were, my mom grew up in Mamaroneck um, near, you know, uh, Westchester County. And so when we were moving them out, um, cleaning stuff out, this typewriter was in the attic. And my grandfather was one of those guys who like, you know, everything is perfect. You know, it was like perfectly oiled and cleaned. And so I opened it up and it was gorgeous and I took it and it was, you know, my mom's typewriter from the fifties. Um, and it's a great typer, great machine, great action, just like really, really just, you know, it's in a suitcase so you can carry it. And, and yeah, so I, I didn't use it for a while, but then when I was in grad school and I write about this in the book, it, it suddenly, again, kind of out of desperation, I turned to it more to slow myself down and it just worked beautifully. It was just, it was just a great, it was the perfect thing I needed to slow my writing process down with the drafts and having to retype each poem was, was great. And I also just love the machine. You know, so yeah, it's it's still I still have it. I still use it. I used to write letters actually, sometimes. Um, do you? What do you write with it now? Do you write poems with it? Sometimes, or? yeah, yeah. Sometimes when I can. I mean, you know, life is a little. You know, it's I can't I can't pull it out and set it up or whatever every time I want to write a poem. But yeah, I still do. I still do with it, and I'll, or I'll write a letter if I want to write a letter to someone and they need a letter and not just like an email. I'll use the typewriter. Huh. Yeah, and I love the word quiet in the name of the typewriter. <laughs> oh, it's a great machine. It's a legendary machine. It's really it's one of the one of the great typewriters for sure. Well, it's nice. It also makes it more musical. You're a musical person. Your son is very musical. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think writing on a typewriter, you know, people can call it pretentious or there's even something kind of funny, I think, in the modern era where everybody's so digital and on their phones to just be banging away on a typewriter. It, it, there's a nice like percussive aspect to it. Absolutely. It's almost like the sound kind of pushes away. There's that, there's that quote that I talked about in white poetry bunch by Wallace Stevens, you know, the pressure of the real, you know, it's like everything. And then it's like the, the imagination and pushes back against the pressure of the real. It's a violence from within that combats the violence from without. And there's something about the sound of a typewriter almost like, kind of like, 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 like creates this penumbra of like activity it's like it's like you know this 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 is going on here don't you know no no twitter no no bullshit you know in here right like i'm i'm doing this in here right now and so yeah i know i felt that i felt it was physical um for sure and, and the sound was great and you don't have that delete key as easily accessible no no and, and that, well that's the thing it's like when you write a poem you have to like you know what i would do uh, when i was in grad school is i was like every time i had write a new draft i have to retype it you know, so every, I mentioned this in the book, I think, but, you know, every, my first book, I mean, most of the poems, there's 150, 200, you know, drafts, you know, little, these piles of paper over and over and over and over and over again, typing. And often there'll just be one word that's different, you know, switching it back and forth and back and forth, you know, and it's just, I was just trying to figure it out. You just pull it out, stare at it and you're like, mm, it's not right. Got to do it again. And this would go on for hours and hours and hours. It was great. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So something that I notice whenever I read works of uh, prose by poets, and it's not any great revelation, but I do notice that like line by line, there is a strength to the writing Mm -hmm. and you can really feel like the poet's attention to detail, like word choice, each line is really measured in your work and just kind of really beautifully musical. And this book is obviously about the process of making a poem. Uh, I'm wondering what your thoughts might be having done both about differences and similarities, you know, when you're working in this mode as a prose writer. Well, I'm so glad you asked this question because I thought it was kind of funny because why poetry, the basic thesis of why poetry is, is that. And and just for listeners, why poetry is again, one of your previous yeah, books. Book yeah. It's a book of prose that came out in 2017. Um, and it's the one, the one that I mentioned earlier where I'm like trying to, you know, to civilians uh, explain like what poems are, you know, or like sort of re un, un, undo a lot of um, teaching mishaps, you know, that we had when we were, you know, learning, learning the wrong things about poems. So, but in that, one of the central arguments of the book is that poetry is a different genre and, and that it's not, what's different about it isn't the language, like the language of poetry and prose and all uses all the same, but that the genre of poetry, it has a different purpose. And so the the point of the book is sort of to play out like what that purpose is, and I think help, thinking about that purpose and understanding it as distinct from 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 acts of prose or different things helps us get into poems. That was like kind of one of my big things that I argued, and so it was kind of hilarious to me to be like, what if what if I just write a book that has the exact opposite thesis in a way that that that, that a, a work of prose and a work of poetry can almost have the same purpose. Like there is no generic distinction between the two, you know? And so, so I think that that was sort of what was going on, like, like, you know, about with, with like turning that idea around saying like, what's not true about what I said and why poetry, what's, 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 what's missing about that idea. And then, and yeah, I, I think I love writing prose. I don't, I think I'm pretty decent on the sentence level. I'm terrible on the structure level. I mean, I really am. And I'm, I'm a mess and I need editors and help and readers and stuff because I just telling a story as you can, if you, if you can't already tell from this conversation, I get distracted. I drift, I, you know, I can't, you know, and so it's, so I, so I'm, that's not an easy thing for me. So it was tough. And I had, it came out on the other end with a lot of respect for people who write memoirs and novels and any, any, any book length work of narrative narration. I'm just like, wow, that is really hard to pull off you know it's i don't even as grueling incredibly grueling i mean poems like da, 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 you do it kind of and you know like it's there's something light about that but you got to grind if you're writing prose yeah. you got to grind oof 
you know, no way around it, right? No. And at least not in my experience. If somebody out there has figured out a way around it, please let me know. <laughs> <laughs> or don't let us know. Yeah. We feel like yeah. total jackasses. Um, <laughs> but something I want to note is the fact that I've often said that I get, I, I tend to get along really well with poets. Yeah. I have like an affinity for people who operate in that mode. I myself don't write poetry. I like to read it. I like to read it as a primer for writing prose. I like to, you know, it helps me kind of get the wheels turning. There's something about those, like that really distilled form of mm -hmm. thought and uh, language that helps me. And you write very well about the way in which poets really do to a degree that is uh, far from the norm. I mean, they, they live so far from the norm. Poets really are living outside of the common human experience and all of the structures of capitalism. And uh, I admire people who find a way to live that life. Well, yeah. I, well, I mean, I think I mean, I, my experiences is, is true for all writers. I don't, I, I can't, I don't know as many visual artists or, or, you know, I know some visual artists and composers. So I'm speaking about writers, but this may also apply to other artists, types of artists. So, but like, I think there's, you get, you have to put yourself outside or in opposition to, 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 to what's going on in order to like free yourself from, from the way language is used you know, you can't just you can't just repeat the way language is used all the time, especially commercial. I mean, it's particularly in our culture, the the, the use of language is so I don't want to say contaminated, so they're permeated by commerce, and it's like and 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 if you want to have any other kind of thought, it's like you almost have to like push away that 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 use of language, slow it down, defamiliarize it, or whatever it is you want to say, and then and and to start to even be recapture your use of language of words and that's something that's been really interesting by the way about being with my kid who has to work pretty hard to to express himself through language and i've watched him learn how to talk in a way that is probably you know i'm surely much more deliberate and like kind of requires more scaffolding than than a neurotypical child would when they learn to talk i mean every parent has the experience it's like their kids learn to talk it's really cool they say funny things they figure things out or whatever that process has taken a longer time with my kid. And it's actually amazing to watch. It's like, it's, he's, it's, it's really cool to watch him learn language. It's been moving and it's reminded me of my own needs as a, as a poet well, to stay outside of the flu of the fluidity of it. Well, that's you know? like some of the mo more poignant yeah. moments in the book have to do with this. There's something poignant about a poet and a writer of prose to be the father of a child who struggles with language and to then work through all the emotional stuff that comes with that, you know, especially at the moment of diagnosis and in its immediate aftermath, the fear, the concern, the sadness mm -hmm. and the heartbreak. But then as you move forward to realize that there are these striking similarities between the work that you do as a poet and the way that uh, your son, Simon, processes and yeah. those kinds of little epiphanies are really cool and familiar to me maybe not the exact same ones for me and my child but you do have these moments where you're like oh wow like th this kid is really extraordinary 
in these unexpected ways. Like your son is perfect pitch, mm-hmm. incredible memory recall. Yeah, he does. You know, so just like this, it's it's a different instrument or it's functioning in a way that's not typical, but it's an extraordinary instrument. And he's yeah, extraordinary. like all minds, like all minds are. And I mean, he, he, you know, but yeah, back to the language thing. I mean, he, he, you know, he, when he says something, it is because he, he really had to work his way through it. And so when he says a piece of original language, which he does more and more now, he had to really think about it. And it's like, and I, that's what I aspire to in my writing. I want every single thing I write to feel that way. Right. Like, like it didn't come easier to spill out of my mouth or just like, or just, or just, just like I took it from the air and just, blah, you know, like right into the, you know, I want it to feel worked through. And like, I mean, again, I mean, I, I want to say earned, but there you go. It's like, it's so you can't, it's almost impossible to complete a sentence without using some kind of capitalist language, you know, like, like, so, uh, you know, uh, worked for, um, achieved, you know, whatever, I keep failing to find the right term that doesn't reflect some kind of weird value, but like, but yeah, but the, the, it's just, he acts like how I want to be as a writer, you know, and I love it. I love listening to him talk. Right. <laughs> it's it's a total pleasure. It's great. And, and, and he also has the wisdom to not talk when he doesn't have anything to say. He just he likes things to be quiet sometimes and good for him, you know? Totally. I, I think of, uh, I mean, just randomly, you, you start to have an antenna for this. I think when you have a child who has disabilities or is neuro, you know, neurodivergent, but you start to like, I see people in the culture who have similar experiences. So for example, uh, Colin Farrell, the actor I know has a disabled son. And so like, mm-hmm. I'm now like, I feel like a connection to him. I don't know if you feel this way, but like Ernie Els, the golfer mm. has a child who I, I believe is autistic. I don't know. I could be wrong, but I remember seeing. No, there, 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 there are definitely people. Yeah. This, but yeah. I just remember seeing like a profile of him, you know, where it was kind of a off the golf course type thing mm-hmm. on ESPN or something years ago, but, but before my son came along. Mm-hmm. But I just, something that he said has stuck with me and has taken on more resonance over time. And he just said that like, I love to be in his world. He's like, I love to just hang out with him one-on-one. And it's just about being with him kind of on his terms. Right. And I relate to that very much because some of the happiest moments that I have as a human being are those moments where I'm just hanging with him, doing his thing Mm -hmm. on his terms. And I think it's usually yeah. when we're removed from the world, we're at home. By contrast, some of the moments that are more challenging for me are when we're maybe out in the world. Like my son has physical disabilities. So to be on a playground mm-hmm. and to be around typical yeah. kids and to kind of see them sure. climbing like, you know, all over the place. And then I'm the dad who's got to like climb yeah. up on the slide and go down the slide. And it's just that part of it emotionally for me that's my shit you know oh i know but i mean it's listen don't be whatever don't don't be don't be mean to my friend brad <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but you know, but but, uh, but no but i mean it's to- of course you feel that way of course you do and 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 you know that does not contradict in any way the love of your love you feel for your son and your pride in him and 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 your understanding that that thing inside you comes from some like why is it that you feel that shame or that upset or that comparison, whatever that's that famous expression, you know, comparison is the thief of joy. We say that all the time in our house and, and, um, and, 
Yeah, but that's the thing that I was that you quoted that thing from the preface earlier about that that how we willingly made ourselves instruments of this culture. You know, freeing ourselves of that has been amazing. Really, it's been it's it's incredibly liberating. And and you know, I yes, of course, I have my moments, but but I mean, I'm I just think again when I have those moments, I think, okay, that's something broken in me, or or and and also, why is the world a place where you know, that isn't built for everybody to be in, you know, why is the playground the way it is? Right. You know, yes. that's, and, and so I, I read somewhere, someone said, and I, I wish I could attribute it. I can't, there's something like, what would, what would the world be like if it were, if there were nothing, like, could we imagine a world where no disability prevented anybody from doing anything? I guess there's a lot of like, that's like triple negatives or something in there, but like, what would a world look like where like someone who was sight impaired or hearing impaired or or autistic or, you know, disabled and in, in, in being in a wheelchair or whatever, you know, physically disabled in some kind of way, like where their experience interacting moment to moment in the world was as easy as it is for people who are quote unquote normal or abled or whatever. And like, what, what would, what would that world look like? And I, sometimes I sit in my, you know, room or at night or whatever, and I try to imagine what would that world look like? And you start imagining things and everything seems like it'd be so much better. <laughs> if it were that way, like, like, what if you didn't have to worry about a car coming screaming around the corner and knocking you over if you were sight impaired? Right. What would that world look like? Right. We could walk around and it wouldn't matter if you didn't always know exactly where you were, you know, something like that, you know? Yeah. So, so that's kind of been such an interesting ongoing thing that I've thought about. And, and, and of course it brings up the issue, a different issue, which is, I don't think we have time to get into really, but you know, about school and how our, you know, how, how, how school is such a, you know, it, it's it's such a narrow band of 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 kind of like how kids are seen and how they're they're you know expected to reproduce information and take it in. It's really it's really a disaster, actually. I agree. And I agree. you get a lot of great people in those in those situations, especially in public school. Wonderful, amazing people, but they're trapped in a system. That's right. And it's tough. Oof. It is tough. And like the thing about it, I think the great challenge for educators and for the the system when it comes to addressing the needs of children with special needs and you know neurodivergent kids is that the diagnoses even though they might have like some label are so specific everyone's different it's a spectrum right you know autism spectrum and disability like my son is a weird not a weird, but it's this very specific combination of things. And he has a very specific set of needs as a result. Mm -hmm. And so for the system to respond with agility to each individual kid is that's the challenge, right? And it needs to improve because I, for sure. I mean, for sure. And, and to, and, and, you know, somebody said something interesting to me once about that too, which was that, and I mean, again, I just can't help but keep thinking about how this relates to, you know, our own practice of writing and what we're trying to do. But, but, you know, they said all the kids are struggling, you know, all the kids are struggling to, to adapt themselves to this like kind of ideal way of doing things. And even the ones it seems that things are coming easy to, you know, they're having their own issues and you just don't see those things or they're not brought out so, so visibly as they might be in with some other people. And, and, you know, that this system needs to change and we need to change and in so many ways. And I just think that, you know, I, I'm interested in, you know, I'm interested in revision. I'm interested in, in change. I'm interested in like constantly looking deeper and trying to find 
what's going on. And I'm very much inside that process. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's, but being in it is better than not being in it. That's for sure. No doubt. Maybe it took, maybe it took this unexpected event in my life to, to push me there and my wife there or whatever, but I'm really grateful, you know, for that. I'm not, I don't walk around feeling like, you know, you know, something terrible happened and I wish it had never happened actually. Well, there is a point, I think you write about this where you sort of get to a point as a parent of a atypical child where you can't imagine it being any other way. Yeah. Like they, they, they are who they are. That's my son. Yeah. (laughs) He's also awesome. I mean, it helps. He's awesome. And I, I get the feeling, you know, your kid's pretty great too. You know, but you have two kids, but like, you know, I get, I get the feeling. I see some pictures every once in a while and it's like kind of, you know, but, um, you know, my kid is awesome and, and, and he's great the way he is. And so, you know, we, we, we have some work to do as a, as a, you know, a lot of work to do as a world, you know, and, and, and I tried to make the point in the book too, that like, there's something about that that is like common to all parenting. I think that the, when parents go wrong, I think it's where they don't really see their kids, you know, and, and, and they don't, they don't, they don't realize that they're different from what they would expect. Yeah. And they're going to do their own thing. And sometimes that's very dramatic and sometimes it's not. And it's almost more dangerous when it's not dramatic. You know, I think that's where, that's where you can really run into trouble. Whereas kids seems like they're just, just, you know, easing along and they're kind of being the kid that you wanted them to be or whatever. And like inside, they're just like, there's something off about it because you're not really. And I think that sort of was my experience as a, as, as a kid externally doing everything right internally feeling like something was really wrong yeah it's like something my wife and i say a lot is like just meet them where they are you know like especially my son but also my daughter you know who's yeah well that's a teaching thing we say that where where i teach him i'm in school right now that's that's one of the meet meet students where they are right and not not and again this gets back to what we talked about at the outset which is acceptance you know like accepting things as they are accepting people as they are and starting there rather than having some fixed idea or alternate idea of how they should be or how things should be that's a- but isn't that true for right for making art too i mean if you if you go into it with a you know with this uh, you know a rigid idea of what you want to do and you just don't you, you you're unwilling to be changed and you're just like I, this is this piece of writing exists for me to like say what i think and what i mean and sometimes there's a time for that for sure but, but, you know, you're not really going to be in the dynamic responsive situation that you need to be in to really make something that's going to be reflective of, you know, of, of life and its actual complexity. Yeah. I think a lot of the time that's, I, I really believe that. And I, I, you know, and I, 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 I believe it cause I've seen it in my own work, but also in a lot of other people's work. So, so that, that parenting and fathering and, and being a, being a writer are, are, are close to me in, in mentality. You know, I think I say in the book, Samak, you know, I'd figured out a lot of things in writing that I hadn't figured out in life. So I had to catch up. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, something I noted about your book is its relative brevity. It's a shorter book. My book is shorter. I think that's what I was noting. Yeah. I was like, oh, so we both wrote like about 200 page books about in large part, you know, having a, an atypical child in the, the process of right. kind of coming to grips with that in some way. I'm wondering if you have thoughts about writing a book that's deeply personal and deals with family and painful stuff. Is it maybe natural to err on the side of shorter? Like I, I think about it personally. I cannot imagine writing like a 500 page book about this stuff. Do you know what I'm saying? 
Yeah, I mean, I think probably that there was something in there, but I think also just like for me, I kept thinking, you know, about the reader. And, you know, I don't know if you know this, Brad, but like a little poetry goes a long way. (laughs) (laughs) There's a kind of famous anecdote about, um, I think, Seamus Haney and his wife or something. And, and, uh, and, um, his wife, you know, after after reading, somebody says, oh, you could have read, you know, to Seamus Haney, he's like, you could have read more poems. And his wife just said, no one has ever complained that a poetry reading was too short. <laughs> you know? Something like that, you know, it's like, and so, so, but I, you know, I think there's some kind of, and, 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 and I, I, I also, yeah, I didn't, I don't know. It's weird. I just didn't want to write a long book. I was like, I just don't, I don't want to go on and on. I want to get out. That's a great, but it's a great point that you make. Like I was talking about the emotional challenges of being the writer dealing with this material, but and then you very wisely brought up the challenges of the reader that you have to be thinking about. You know, I think a book that goes into this kind of bracing territory and emotionally challenging territory, the reader can be appreciative of the fact that you're willing to go there, but also the fact that you're like economical in in addressing. You know, you're not going on and on and on. And I I think too, on a related note, you know, this kind of goes back to a thought that you had a a minute ago, but I want to get to it because I loved it. It it has to do with being open and receptive in the creative process and not having a fixed idea um, that you're just kind of clinging to in, in art and in life. But something that was helpful to me when I read it and that I'd love to hear you talk about is this idea from, I believe, Brenda Hillman when it comes to revision, the revision process, which I think is where you can, you know, maybe you started with some sort of fixed idea or agenda as a creative person. And then in the, in the revision, you sort of realize, oh, it's better if I deviate and you follow that instinct to good effect. Mm -hmm. But something that she says is revise toward strangeness. Yeah. I love that. One of our principles. I know it's amazing. Think about that all the time. Yeah. Go, because I mean, I believe, I mean, this is especially true about a poem. I, I can't speak as much. I can't speak to a novel because I've never written one. Um, but uh, it's the moment that is most disruptive or the moment that feels the most, the strangest or the ones you can't, the, the moment you can't paraphrase, you can't explain, but you sort of feel viscerally is, is an insight or something, or just beautiful that, that, that that's the, that's the sort of, thing that's drawing you forward in your life and your imagination, you know, and that's that now, again, we are also just talking about my kid, actually the same thing, but like, you know, but that like, this is what that. And so I say, so what I say often about when I'm teaching poetry, like reading, you know, literature or whatever, is I'll say, you know, it's the, it's the part of the poem that most aggravates you or you feel yourself most resisting, or you feel yourself confused by that is the key to interpretation that's the moment that you that 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 tells you what the poem is quote unquote really about at least for you you know and so and that's true for writing it too you know it's the part that bothers you you know it's the part that you you know and so i say i think somewhere in the book you know there's that famous piece of advice you know slaughter your darlings or whatever like the i can't i don't know who said that but like there was was it i want to say it was faulkner but it probably wasn't but but like you know you have to slaughter you have to get rid of the thing that you're most attached to or feel is most beautiful in your work because that's like sort of you know, some kind of mirage or ego, ego projection or something like that or whatever, but which I think is probably true a lot of the time, but like in poetry, you know, it's the opposite. You have to like get rid of all the other stuff. It's the weird 
jewel that you like somehow unearthed or landed in your life, you know, some weird word or image or something. That's the thing you have to build the whole poem around because that's really your insight. That's your, that's your imagination. So, you know, that was where that, what you talk about discovering things, you know, in the writing, that's, that was, that's the thing that was true about writing poems. That's true about parenting for me. It's the, it's the rebuild your life around the thing that is different, strange, beautiful, precious. You're my kid, your kid, everybody's kid in a way, rebuild your whole life around that. And then you, then you'll have, then you'll have a real, then you'll have a life. And it's true for a poem too. You know, it's like, you have to rebuild everything around it. And, and that's exciting. It's fun. You know, it's coming up with some kind of structure where that weird thing makes sense, you know? Yeah. And then you have life. I want, you know? now I'm, I'm, I mean, this is, this is related and I hope I have it right. I think it was Todd Goldberg. Uh, you know, Todd. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Your friend and mine. And he, uh, <laughs> But I want to say he was, I, I don't know if, he, if it was him. I could be misremembering this. So apologies, Todd. If let's I'm, give him credit. Yeah, let's give him credit. But he was talking about his revision process and how he would off, or sometimes like take like a 2.5, like a very low dose cannabis edible during editing. Shame. shame. <laughs> but, but I- Ring the bell, shame. But no, I think it's related to this idea of revising towards strangeness. Yeah. Like I get that. Like, oh yeah, you know, once you've done the hard labor of drafting and you've got this mm-hmm. thing out there and you've spent so much time with it, like you're sick to death of it in a weird mm-hmm. way. I get needing to sort of come at it from a bit of an odd angle. Not too much, yeah. not too much, but like just a bit of a sideways angle For so sure. that you can make it weirder. <laughs> and sometimes time is the best, you know, that, you know, if you don't have access, easy access to, you know, a dispensary, I mean, the, the, right. you know, right. the, 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 you know, I, I mentioned this in the book, you know, put it in the drawer is what I, my friends and I or poets say to each other all the time, because if you leave something alone long enough, like for real, like if you just forget about it for a month or two, you know, you, you reapproach it with a kind of strangeness that you, you know, you, cause you've kind of, you're not, like you said, inside it anymore. So sometimes really time is actually super helpful. And I think, by the way, that can be harder for prose writers because it's just like so over, like put what in a drawer? Like, like, like I can't also just take two months off of this project, you know, like, like all those things. I think the external pressures on, you know, on people who write longer works like that, you know, that, but there's some kind of equivalent, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, it doesn't involve cannabis, although I'm not opposed to that solution also, you know. Just something I think like I call it, like you, you call it putting it in the drawer. I call it like letting the text cool off. Yeah, that's good. You know, and like, how do you, you know, as a prose writer, like, how do you, like, mechanically, how does that work for you? Because you could literally, like, put a poem in the drawer for a month and just completely forget about it, and work on something totally different. And that's fine. You're not, like, you're not sort of, like, removing yourself from your work. But I think, do you, like, how, how practically would you do that with a work of prose? Well, I mean, I think it's like you know? the, one of the challenges would be being on deadline. You know, if you're on deadline, yeah. that's a struggle. Then you, you know, you might not have the luxury of putting it away for a month. I think if you can just not open the, the document for a month or two and really try to, like you say, forget about it, that's that's great. Did you do that when you were writing when you were writing your last book? Were you able to get, get I feel like you did because you kind of like took a shot at it and then like you walked away from it and you came back. So maybe it was enforced on you. But did you have that? Yeah, there were so many there were so many false attempts and like attempts to like get away from it, like to not address right. the thing. Like I went through this whole process, but I think that ultimately, um, 
yeah, ultimately I was just able to, uh, go through such a long, like drawn out <laughs> process yeah. that I was able to see it ultimately. Like I, I really do feel like for whatever, you know, flaws it may have, like that's the best I could do with this material. I feel, I feel, I continue to feel a peace about that book, but I also think yeah. that maybe one of the functions of having a longer process is that you end up writing other projects. Like you start something else. You'd be like, yeah. oh, well maybe I'll try to do this. And I know that there are a lot of writers who work on multiple things at once. And I sort of get the logic of that when it comes to what we're talking about. If you can jump from one thing to another, right. it's, it's a nice way to forget this one thing and to let it become new again. I bet there are people listening who have their little tricks of ways of dealing with this. Like, you know, I, I'm working on two things at the same time and I, you know, I can put one away and come back, you know, whatever people have different things they're doing. Like I said, it's just easier with poems because, you know, you can be working on a bunch and they can all be in different stages at different times. And you can, so it's easy to just put one away and not feel like you just halted yourself or whatever. And in this case, I mean, for me, it was like, there were parts of it I could put away because it's kind of like, you know, one of those books that has like a lot of different kinds of thing that I'm doing in it. Like I could focus on one aspect of it for a while and leave something else out, you know, aside for a month or two or whatever. Like, and that, that was in this particular case, it was easier than it might be if you were writing a, oh, I don't know, maybe if you're writing a novel, you just write a different, you work on a different part of it. I don't know. But like, yeah, it's, I, I think even my naivete about how that works would be, but yeah, the hardest thing about the book was that you talked about the length of it. I mean, it was that sort of, I thought of it like a kind of like a fader, you know, in a studio and there's like kind of like some are up and some are down. It's halfway. And like, you know, how far to push one fader up, you know, how far to push up the thing that's like about, you know, maybe reading other people's poems. Like there's certain parts of the book where I read, you know, Paul Salon or Stevens or Rupi Kaur or whatever. And like, and like how, how, you know, there's, I could do that for another 20 pages, another 50 pages, another 100 pages. Like at some point it's gonna be too much. And at some point it's not enough. If you just did it once, it's like, why? So, you know, all those, all those like fader shifting things were, took me a long time. Sure. But then eventually I, I think just sort of, blundered into a relative reasonable mix of them you know and it helped to have my wife read it she's an incredibly good reader and she she pointed out a few times when i went too far with something and i could just cut it back a bit or whatever you know i find like that as a reading experience i love like this is a i guess you would call a braided narrative and there are different things happening in different story threads you know that you're weaving together and it creates when it's done well a really pleasurable like velocity and it, like it moves that that's the yeah, word and there are people who do it very well who i read you know um i mean god so many people um i mean i feel like vivian gornick it's just like one of those people who like i read one of her books and i'm in absolute heaven the whole time start to finish and i have no idea how she did it or some a very different writer you know kate zambrino you know does a that kind of thing and it's like how did she know how much of this and how much of that like you know, and, and I, I've never talked to her. I don't know her. I don't know either of those people, but like, I just, I just, you know, books like that you read and you're just like, man, you, you just have the right feel for like how much of this and how much of that to do it. And I, I like, I, I always felt after I finished one of their books, like, oh God, you know, I totally do not have that feel, you know? So, so I just had to kind of just, yeah, kind of keep going in and in and in and, and uh, having editors and readers obviously helps. Sure. Like, great. You know, thank God. Well, Jesus. there's something else that your book does, which I love, is that it, uh, it 
it's it's autobiographical you know it's a memoir so you're telling not just the story of your child and not just the you know there's not just these uh, explorations of craft that we've been discussing but it also traces some of the bigger moments in your i think education as a poet i love mm-hmm. the part where you're at the you know you're in moscow <laughs> at the university of moscow uh yeah. sort of like it's like a very relatable experience at a certain stage of life where you're trying to kind of like make a grand gesture and do something and get out there and then you get there and you're like what the fuck am i doing <laughs> <laughs> particularly when i was there you know early like you know late 1990 in moscow and moscow state university i mean the entire society was like literally collapsing right so it was kind of like maybe not the best place for like a 21 year old to be you know wasn't really equipped for that situation but yeah maybe but maybe a good primer for what was to come <laughs> yeah i had no idea yeah no i mean I, it was it was fun to write about the past and a lot of that stuff i had to take out you know there's 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 more writing about like kind of you know like sort of yeah like you call it education of a writer stuff which i personally like reading but i think it's kind of yeah, I just definitely wanted to not, you know, get, it just felt some, at some point, like I was talking a lot about myself, you know, and I just didn't, I was like, it's enough, you know, it's just, but I thought the, the funnier or the more pleasurable anecdotes or just the ones that maybe like are a little more felt relatable, I guess, hopefully were, you know, those are the ones that stayed in. No, I think you managed the dials perfectly in those, in those uh, scenes. And I also loved, there's a section of the book where you go to uh, Hawaii and mm-hmm. you get to spend some time with the late W.S. Merwin. I love, yeah. as a writer, I love stuff like oh, that. I love good. I'm glad you like, yeah, I wasn't, that was something, you know, cause I mean, you, so going back to the process of writing it, I mean, I just, that's something that happened when I was writing that, that, you know, while I was doing that daily writing with Catherine, that happened. I, I was very fortunate to get invited to go visit him in his a house in Maui. Um, this was in uh, late 2018. And, you know, it turned out he died in March, 2019. So it was a few months before he died. And, you know, I got an opportunity to go there. And so I went and I was there with Lewis Hyde, who wrote The Gift, that amazing book, The Gift and other books. And so, and I gave a few readings with him there, but um, yeah, so just, and I, you know, and when I was writing it, I didn't know if that would like stay in the book or not. I had no idea. It was, it was just what was going on for that week or whatever. And, but it ended up feeling like it was connected you know, going to see like a pilgrimage to go see this person who's meant so much, whose literature, his work has meant so much to me, you know. And for listeners I, who don't know, W.S. Merwin spent his, you know, his, uh, the, the back half of his life or a good chunk yeah, of the back half of his life on Maui, right? It was Maui. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then I, I called Haiku, believe it or not. Okay. And I mean, like, so on <laughs> brand, right? But he lives in Haiku yeah, and he, he lived in a, what, he planted a forest with his own hands of palms and other yeah what he did is he basically so so um he moved there and he was practicing zen buddhism and that was like a big part of his life but then he bought this um old farm you know a a, a disused farm or whatever and he he created like this preserve basically for rare species of palm trees so and planted them and built the whole built his house built all the paths and then and would plant these trees so there are many species of palm trees that are preserved in this, in this, they call it a garden, but it feels more like a forest, you know, and, and that, that's what he was doing with his, with his like hands and his energy and his life, you know, along of course with writing poems for 30 years. God. Um, and it's amazing. It's an amazing place. You can go there. It's the, the Merwin Conservancy is the, 
takes care of it. And Merwin, W.S. Merwin, of course, amazing poet, you know, a, um, a poet laureate, a, won every prize in the world or whatever. It's fantastic poet and, and uh, someone who meant a lot to me personally. So getting to actually meet him was pretty incredible, I would say. And um, yeah, and just, yeah, again, a person who, yeah, something about bringing those trees from wherever they were and like replanting them there and keeping them safe also felt like highly symbolic to me in my own both life and, and writing practice. Well, I cannot part company with you without noting that you performed uh, a some somewhat similar function for me as I was writing my book. You appear in Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. And there are a few, and there, you know, for people who haven't read the book, there are a few podcast guests who kind of make appearances in the book. And Matthew is one of them. And I sometimes get asked, like, how did you choose? And I always say, I didn't really. Like, it just sort of happened. Like at that particular moment of the writing, I was like, oh yeah. But the essay, there's a short bit of prose at the end of your poetry collection, Father's Day, which was meaningful and helpful to me. Um, And boy, I'm blanking on the name of it. What was it called again? uh, Late Humanism, I think I called it. Yeah, Late Humanism. Somewhat pretentious title. But but which (laughs) serves not only as a help to me in the writing of my book and the conversation that we had last time on this podcast, you know, was illuminating and helpful and just like nice to, it's always nice to meet other parents who are sort of in the same mm-hmm. boat. Um, but late humanism, this bit of prose at the end of Father's Day, you know, you kind of characterize as a bridge to story of a poem. Like that was the mm-hmm. launching point or at least one of the launching points. Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of, I think that I sort of wrote that around the same time that I was writing the stuff that was in, that became in Story of a Poem. You know, so I was doing the daily writing, but then I, when I wrote that piece of prose, it was right at the end. So so basically what happened is I was, I had most of that book Father's Day done. And then I was sort of finishing up with a few last poems when I started writing the stuff that was in Story of a Poem. You know, so there's kind of an overlap. Like, and so the poem that I write in Story of a Poem actually appears in Father's Day, that poem, Our Custody. And then also that piece of prose you're talking about was also written during that same time. So obviously there's like a natural kind of overlap of the, of the concerns. And yeah, I mean, it meant a lot to me to talk to you at that point too, because I was much earlier on and you, you, I don't know, it was very comforting, I guess, for lack of a better term to like connect with you about that. And we don't know each other that well. I mean, I wouldn't say, you know, we don't hang out or whatever. I mean, not yet. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> but, but I mean, but it just, yeah, like dads who are going through, uh, you know, different, something different than they expected. Right. Um, and, and, you know, like, and, you know, it's, there's, there's, there's a lot of life and a lot of joy in these, in these, in these parenting experiences, but they're, they're tough and you need solidarity for sure. Well, you know? it's been, it's been great to catch up with you again. Uh, and congratulations on Story of a Poem. It's a really beautiful book. And it's a book that I think, I mean, a lot of readers will enjoy, but I think in particular, there if there are readers out there who might be going through something similar, you know, mm-hmm. they will find it to be a kind of life raft, which I think books of this kind can function as, you know, when somebody's coming from a really personal place and is uh, trying to make sense of things, you know, for himself or herself, it just uh, performs that function for me. And I always like to end by asking if there's anything else in the works. It's fine if there is not, but is there another book or project that you are working on? New poem. It was great to get back to new to poems after this. And I've been, so I've been in poems and I wouldn't say they are 
particularly personal. I think it's been nice to, I, I sort of, I missed being able to kind of sing, I guess, for lack of a better term. So I've, I've really just been writing a lot of poems and they're, you know, they're not, you know, they, they aren't like particularly autobiographical, I would say, or whatever, which has been super nice and really great. So yeah, poems, I haven't really, no, no prose work, thank God, though. <laughs> yeah, um, but I, but I just, I do want to say too, that, you know, I really, I really loved your book, Brad, and I really appreciate it. And it meant a lot to me too. And I think that, you know, I think that, you know, we, there, I would say about your book, and I hope this is true about mine, that they will connect with people, anybody, because everybody has to join, you know, has to, has to realize that life is full of stuff that you did not plan on. And like, you know, that, that, that's a hard, hard truth. And, and it's, it's an obvious one, but it's not, it's not one thing to know it. It's another thing to live through it. So it's particularly true about parenting. So anyway, I really appreciate you and your, and your work and everything you do. And yeah, so it's, it's good. It's good to talk. Well, thanks so much again for taking the time. I wish you all the best with this book and whatever comes next. Thanks. You too. All right, everybody. There we go. That was my conversation with Matthew Zapruder, his new memoir, is called Story of a Poem, available now from Unnamed Press. If you want to find Matthew online, his website is matthewzapruder.com. He's on Twitter, at Matthew Zapruder, and I think that's it. Once again, his new book is called Story of a Poem. It's out there now. It's waiting for you. It's excellent. Go get your copy. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you had a good time, I hope you will consider supporting the show for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you want to get another people t-shirt, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. Just scroll down, look for the t-shirt. If you would like to sign up for my free once a week email newsletter, you can sign up at bradlisty.com or otherppl.com. Don't forget to rate this show and review this show wherever you listen to this show. It helps new listeners find this show. Watch the Other People podcast on YouTube. Search for the show by name. When you get to the Other People channel, hit the subscribe button. Don't forget to follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. If you have some feedback, the email address for the program is letters at otherppl.com. And if you would like to read my latest book, it's a novel. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It's a work of autofiction available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So go get my book if you want it. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Coming up on Sunday, I will be in conversation with Claire Dieterer. She has a new book out called Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma. It is terrific. I had a great time talking with Claire, and I will be sharing that with you imminently. So stay tuned.